there is a fundamental difference between the law and justice. Here we are in Iraq, we've had nearly a thousand claims resolved successfully for the claimants. We've had the death of Bahamusa at the hands of the British troops, and yet we've only had one person who's ever done time. Now, in anybody's terms, that does not say much about British justice. You're listening to the Justice Clap podcast with me, Damien Aguirre. An industry seems to be being built up around making spurious claims against the brave men and women of our armed forces, and uh, that is not acceptable. So I'm determined to shut this industry down. In the late 2000s, human rights lawyer Martin Day, along with Phil Shiner, began representing Iraqi civilians in cases alleging severe inhumane treatment following the Iraq war. In 2014, the Al-Swedi Inquiry report on the Iraq war found that some claims were false and linked a number of claimants to civilian armies following highly publicized proceedings brought by the overseeing body for solicitors in 2017. Martin Day and his colleagues were cleared of 20 allegations of misconduct. Phil Shiner was struck off and Martin Day was left to weather the storm of public opinion. Earlier this month, an official Ministry of Defence disclosure showed that government had settled 417 claims this year alone. On this episode, editor of the Justice Gap, John Robbins, speaks with Martin about his experience, these revelations, and his work with Phil Shiner. Martin, so this kind of story arose, as I understand it, from a publication made by the Ministry of Defence last week, which is a a bulletin of their kind of latest compensation claims. And it transpired that hundreds of compensation claims against the MOD on the behalf of Iraqi civilians had been settled in the last year. Can you just tell me a bit about your involvement in those claims? We have been representing Iraqis in claims against the government since about 2006, so over 15 years. And the cases went in two waves. The first set of cases resolved in around 2009-10 with odd odd bits and pieces of different, but the great majority of the first group settled in 2009-10 and there were a little over 300 of those that succeeded uh, in getting compensation. And that was all done via settlement discussions with the government. we then brought a second wave of cases, and at that stage, the government obviously decided to fight uh, rather than sit down and settle. We said, look, these cases are really very little different to the first group, but there was clearly a lot of political pressure on the government to um, to fight, and that's what they did. And from around 2010-11, they battled us in the courts all the way up to the Supreme Court twice, um, and we had a number of test cases that went before Mr Justice Leggett, and... Uh, uh, it was his judgment in January 2018 that then led to this second wave of settlements. Um, you know, the government obviously were fighting in the hope that they'd win either on legal points that went up to the Supreme Court or, or on the factual matrix of these cases, hoping to persuade the judge that not to believe these Iraqis in their claims. But uh, obviously the judge didn't agree and uh, he awarded them decent sums of money. Is there any qualitative difference between second wave cases and first wave cases? They're just more of the same. Not at all. There were, I mean, uh, it's a long time to remember, but there were obviously some cases. So in the early group of cases was Bahamusa. So there were odd cases like that where um, they were very different. But the actual 
great majority of the cases were very similar, both first and second wave. How would you kind of characterise those cases? People are very concerned about kind of the, the practices that British troops were using, kind of hoarding, um, kind of sensory deprivation practices. How, how would you characterise some of the practices you, you see in these cases? Well, it became very clear that the um, it was the British Army's decision at the high level to actually bring back the five techniques that had been banned during the period of Ted Heath and the Troubles in Northern Ireland. And uh, it had been decided at that time that these were not uh, the sorts of interrogation techniques that a civilised nation should use, but that, that they were brought back in, whether people forgetting that it had been banned by during that Heath era or, or deciding to just ignore it. And they brought in all the things, as you say, like uh, hooding, stress techniques, failure to give water and, uh, uh, and food to people, putting them into, into stress positions um, while they were being interrogated. Uh, using loud noises, all that sort of stuff that, as I say, had been banned before, but they got back into using them. And the courts decided that they were totally inappropriate in this modern day. You pointed out uh, the irony between the silent settlement of these cases and presumably the passing of the Overseas Operations Act and some of the political rhetoric around that. Can you talk about that? Yeah, is that it was, I mean, looking back, I mean, entirely depressing for us as a British nation is that, you know, the politicians to the very highest level, to the Prime Minister, David Cameron, then subsequently Theresa May, calling us out, saying that we were bringing these scurrilous claims, that it was vexatious, that it was an outrage, that we were contemplating acting for these Iraqis, um, you know, subtext being, look, these are just horrible foreigners, you know, trying to make uh, good against our boys, all that sort of sort of politics that is driven by uh, the right-wing media and, you know, just, just generally that sort of mood. And yet at the same time, they must have been getting advice from the government legal department that actually these claims are ordinary Iraqis on the streets, ending up being arrested by the British, uh, hooded, put in stress techniques, um, duffed over, sometimes being up pretty badly. Um, and these were pretty just normal, sensible claims. You know, it was not a whole series of extreme examples of terrorists you know, doing this, that or the other. It was just the vast majority were just ordinary Iraqis going about their business who ended up on the wrong side of British soldiers. And that's what was so depressing about it. And rather than our politicians learning the lesson to say, look, what we recognise is that actually our troops are just not any good at policing a nation once the war is finished. They haven't got the techniques. They have not got the restraint. You know, their natural tendency is into battle. It is to be, you know, uh, fighting. Whereas Whereas, you know, when you're on the streets of a, of, a, of a nation, your job is to police. It's to do as our police we'd expect them to be doing here. But that was just not the case. And uh, I think that the fact that our politicians were giving out such rhetoric gave encouragement to that view as well. So, you know, I think in anybody's terms, it has been a very poor. Um, the history is will, I think, treat the army and the uh, politicians around this period very badly. I think that they have been reprehensible in the way that they responded to these claims. Hello, I'm just interrupting this episode of the podcast to say that if you're enjoying this interview and the series so far, please consider sharing us with your friends and colleagues and rating us if your podcast platform allows it. 
Now, back to John's conversation with Martin. We've seen kind of increasing attacks over the last 12 months on kind of left-wing activist lawyers. Uh, do you kind of worry about the, the politicisation of your practice area? I do, you know, is that you know, very sadly, we look to be moving a little bit towards where they are in the States, where the gulf between the Republicans and the Democrats and how they treat each other gets ever more serious. And it seems to me that we're starting to move a little bit the same way here. And that, uh, as you fairly say, the treatment of uh, human rights lawyers in our jurisdiction uh, gets all ever more worrying. I mean, the whole idea of reviewing the Human Rights Act which the Tories have had around in their manifesto for years, as uh, they clearly obviously keep coming up against big, massive problems because it's not really gone very far, but still, it still remains as a uh, spectre hanging over the whole area of life uh, in this country. And it, it makes me nervous in terms of where this government is prepared to go. Um, and as I say, what is so depressing is a lot of this was driven by what the government had been saying about what had been going on in Iraq. But the story that they'd given out was totally, um, uh, totally wrong. Solicitors are not taking this lying down. One of the law firms is Lee Day, which denies wrongdoing. You were kind of you cleared a professional kind of misconduct charges yourself in a process that you felt was kind of politically inspired. Can you talk to me about that? We were very clear that. Phil Shiner undoubtedly did some daft things which resulted in him uh, being struck off. But at the same time, he got caught up in the maelstrom surrounding all that. And that rather than the SRA standing back and actually thinking, well, has this firm actually done wrong? Um, which I think it was as plain as a pint staff. We hadn't. Um, but that they got caught up and I, we, I've got nothing overt, but it's certainly in my mind that the SRA got caught up by the politics of the whole business, that they thought it would do them uh, a lot of good in terms of prosecuting us alongside Phil Shiner and his firm. And uh, that, you know, obviously in the end they came a cropper, it didn't do them any good at all. But just the very nature of the accusations that were made against us were the vast majority of it was absolute nonsense. John asked Martin about the lessons he and his firm had learned following findings that a number of their clients' claims were false. This was Martin's response. We totally recognised, you know, we ended up acting for nine people who were clearly uh, either lying or certainly mega-exaggerating. But that took a massive inquiry lasting for years and years to get to the bottom of. I mean, you know, our job... We all we said at the start is that look here are some really worrying allegations that they need to be properly investigated um, and got to the bottom of. Given the outcome of the Al Swedi inquiry, Martin said this about whether it should have been carried out at all. Now, obviously, in the end, the inquiry found that the Iraqis had either been lying or exaggerating, and uh, but I mean that was a good part of British justice in the sense of. Allegations were made, they were found not to be true. Well, you know, every time you conduct have a, an inquiry conducted, you can't expect it's always going to find that the allegations were true. Um, so, you know, I, I totally stand by the notion that it was right for the investigations to be carried out, for the inquiry to be held. Um, and I think the actual chair of the committee said that this was a good example of British justice at its best. And I, I agree with that. What were some of the kind of ideas that you had about improving the system? 
Well, the, the biggest issue is the investigation when things go wrong, is that the Royal Military Police have shown time and time again that they're just not in a position to conduct these sort of investigations. And uh, we're in court at the moment on an Afghan case involving the murder of uh, some people in Afghanistan, a case called Saifullah. And... Uh, Similar sorts of issues arising there, and this is many years later. Um, so I think the biggest issue, and I think actually it is for both sides of the argument. I think that the 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 army would want this as much as the uh, as we do. Is that the last thing anybody wants is for a poor investigation to be conducted immediately after an event takes place, and that then nobody's satisfied. Nobody's satisfied in terms of getting justice for the victims, and then it just results often in further investigations, further. Uh, need for the um, for the soldiers to have to repeat what's happened for them to be taken back over the coals, which I can totally understand why they feel really upset. That sometimes with these events, it's been three, four, five times that there have been investigations, and that's usually because the RMP has done such a poor job in the first place. I spoke to Clive Baldwin, senior legal advisor at Human Rights Watch, to get his views. With respect to the recent revelations about the British government settling cases, these are not a surprise for any of us who've been following this issue, as Human Rights Watch has been for well over a decade. There have been many, many cases brought by Iraqi civilians alleging abuse, and hundreds of these have been settled by the Ministry of Defence, and they've paid out millions of pounds in compensation. What has not happened is that is anyone been effectively prosecuted for what have been clearly war crimes that took place um, British Army in Iraq when they were occupying it. Given everything that's happened, the lack of prosecutions, the fact that the Ministry of Defence doesn't come out to say anything about what has been politicised as an issue, you had David Cameron talking about it, Theresa May talking about it, the same secretary. What about the lack of accountability that comes with quiet settlements? Yeah, the lack of accountability being on two levels. One is just that you may settle, you may pay money by effectively admitting that um, Iraqis were abused by members of the British Army. But by not prosecuting anyone, um, you don't see the, the justice being done. You don't see justice being done in Iraq. You don't see justice being done here. It does not root out whatever culture, whatever caused this um, to happen, a lot of the abuses were done, as have been documented, in British military detention. And it's a very bad precedent at the international level. And then there's the issue of um, accountability at a much higher level, accountability of the armed forces and of the politicians and of those at most responsible at the chain of command. Because for a war crime, there's an uh, concept of command responsibility when those who are in a position of command, which includes the ministers at the time, who were in a position to prevent war crimes or hand those over to justice, those responsible over to justice, they should be accountable as well. And they can actually be prosecuted. And none of this has happened in the 20 years of, uh, nearly 20 years of um, British abuses in Iraq and the lack of accountability. So how do we make sure that we balance these discussions with the emotive side of these topics to ensure that people can understand why it is that these cases are being brought? I mean, it's important to know what these cases are actually about. And it's not about the entire army, it's about certain individuals within them. 
Um, although some of the responsibility goes high up the chain of command. But it's important to know about who was affected, like one of the most fa famous cases was the hotel receptionist, Baha Musa, who was beaten to death in um, the custody of the British Armed Forces in 2003. And because his case has received so much attention, and um, we've seen exactly what happened, and there were even videos of some of the abuse at an early stage, it's um, shown what has happened. So, I mean, there's an emotive side to saying there needs to be justice for any crime like this, any unlawful death, any torture, um, no matter who was responsible. And that's the key to say this is about humanity um, at the basis. Martin ended by talking about a system of reform which would allow for a more accountable military. What I do want is a military that is accountable, that is, uh, understands its role. As I've just said earlier, I think it, it's a big mistake to put the army in to police foreign, for foreign areas. I think that they just have got the skills, skill set. Um, but it's also to recognise that, you know, I think the vast majority of the British army do a good job. They have some really cracking soldiers, massive bravery. But at the same time, there are significant numbers of bad apples in the barrel that you're simply always going to attract into an army um, some bad apples and that you need a system that actually ensures that they are weeded out uh, speedily and efficiently. And I don't think that that's true. I think that the whole route whereby when events occur, that the army stands by it, you know, everybody, and that doesn't actually say, look, this is totally wrong. And we see that with the case of the Kenyan woman uh, murdered uh, that the Sunday Times has been highlighting over the last three or four weeks. Um, I think it just goes on and on that there is a natural tendency within any organization, but particularly in the army, to stand by its people, even when what they've done is so badly wrong. And, uh, you know, so for me, I totally support the military, but I, I support a military that is more accountable, uh, more prepared to accept mistakes that are made, and that has a system for rooting out uh, corrupt or, or violent soldiers. You've been listening to the Justice Gap podcast. This episode was produced by John Robbins and me, Damian Dury. The theme music was created by Oscar Ralph. Again, if you like this episode and the series so far, please consider sharing us with your friends and colleagues. See you on the next episode.